I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. I'm uh, very happy to be here with Dr. David Gandera, who is a professor of medicine emeritus and and a senior advisor to the Director of Medical Oncology at UC Davis in Davis, California. He is also the past president uh, of the ISLC and for many years was the uh, lung cancer chair uh, for the committee for the Southwest Oncology Group. Now, uh, you've been involved with many aspects of thoracic oncology over uh, the last several decades, but uh, most recently you've been working a lot on uh, blood-based testing. So can you start just by talking about uh, where you see blood-based testing now for molecular uh, interrogation and where you think it's going to be in two or three or five years? Okay, well thanks Jack. Um, I I think maybe in order to um respond to that, I should give you my perspective about where we are. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is uh, it's my position that there has never been any area of oncology where there have been so many advances in such a short period of time that have really revolutionized the field. That has either made our decision making more simple or it has made it more complex. And my position is that it has made it more complex for the practicing oncologists. And that's where uh, liquid biopsy or blood-based biopsy comes in. Because so much of what we do today uh, in lung cancer requires us to interrogate that patient's tumor in one way or the other in order to make the most informed decisions. For forever, you know, tissue has been the gold standard by which we do that. But if we can assess the same abnormalities in blood, and when I say the same abnormalities, I don't mean just the genomic abnormalities that are associated with tumor mutation, but I mean also perhaps immunophenotyping. And we can do that in a rapid turnaround time. And we can abrogate the issues with tumor heterogeneity by using blood, which would be a global reflection of shed DNA in the blood. Then we will have revolutionized our therapeutic decision making. So that's where I come from on the issue of liquid biopsy. Right now, uh, liquid biopsy is already well recognized in certain aspects of lung cancer management, such as EGFR mutation testing, either up front or uh, at the time of acquired resistance. But there are now eight oncogene-driven cancers which are recognized by organizations such as NCCN and guidelines. All of these now can be detected not only in tissue, but in blood specimens with commercially available, reimbursable, CMA-approved tests that have turnaround times as short as a week. 
So this is a long-winded way of replying that I think the field is moving in lung cancer toward more precision medicine, despite all the negative articles that have been published about prostate cancer or carcinoma of unknown primary, where precision medicine may not be playing out. In lung cancer, we have enough targets to make it worthwhile. In what context would you say it is most useful now? It's not replacing the initial biopsy, but, uh, and how much does the sensitivity limitation affect things? Is this something where uh, it's appropriate as a first pass, but if it's negative, you should go ahead with a tissue-based biopsy? Or do you see it as now or in the near future being sensitive enough that people can have confidence that sending off a blood-based assay is sufficient? That, of course, is the question of the day. Uh, you know that we published about three months ago a consensus statement from ISLC in the Journal of Thoracic Oncology, the ISLC's official journal, uh, about, and it was a worldwide global expert uh, workshop that we put, to, put together about the place of liquid biopsy. And I'm in agreement with the algorithms that we developed for that, which say in a first-line uh, setting, of course, you need to establish a diagnosis of cancer. You need still histology mm -hmm. because we have drugs that are contraindicated. And of course, you need, um, even in some cases, you could make a case for squamous cell lung cancer, you need to assess the genomics. Uh, so in order to do that, you do need a tissue biopsy. It has been the standard for many years that even small fine needle biopsies are sufficient for lung cancer because uh, all you needed to figure out if it was small cell or non-small cell. We're long past that. In this um, consensus statement, the algorithm says for first-line therapy, that you would only use liquid biopsy as your test when the tissue was either unavailable or it was not sufficient. For oncogene-driven cancers at the time of acquired resistance, on the other hand, the algorithm, and it's not just our consensus statement, but from other authors as well, is that it's a plasma-first approach. And the reason for that is that false positives for the oncogenes are extraordinarily rare. Mm -hmm. False negatives occur because that patient may not have a tumor that is shedding sufficient DNA. So that being said, let's say you're looking for T790M in a patient who has been on a first generation EGFR TKI and has now progressed. And if the plasma says, yes, there is T790M, then I don't think there are many people who are working in the field of lung cancer who would say you should not act on that. On the other hand, if it's negative, then you would need to go to a biopsy uh, or uh, perhaps have a, uh, a second draw. Uh, because again, shed DNA reflects what's going on at the moment. I'll just give you a quick example. I have some patients who are on uh, an EGFR inhibitor and they've clinically responded, maybe their scan's even better. And they come to me with a report uh, of a liquid biopsy and they say, look, this thing didn't even detect 
my Exxon 19 deletion. I say, you know, that's fantastic. That means your therapy has eliminated it from the plasma. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So it, it's all, you can't think, take things out of context. But this also brings up the question of if it is that easy to get a kind of time-stamped assay in a way that, that tissue biopsies have never been that safe or feasible, do you foresee in a few years the possibility of using uh, a plasma assay for ongoing surveillance in between uh, or as some kind of complement to imaging to get a sense of what's going on, to, to get an, a real-time uh, understanding of the biology of the cancer, particularly if the sensitivity improves in coming years. I, I do think that's the case. Uh, I do like. I would like to come back to the issue of sensitivity mm -hmm. because it, it is a perception that liquid biopsy, almost regardless of the technology, is less sensitive. And actually, that's not true. And with many of the current technologies, it's more sensitive than tissue. You have to realize how far we've come since the initial guidelines for testing from ISLC, CAP, AMP, ESMO, NCCN were developed in 2013. The ISLC guidelines said if you're testing for EGFR mutation, whether it's in tissue or blood, you need a test that is accurate at the 25% sensitivity level. Well, now people would laugh at that. And in fact, people would laugh if you said your test was sensitive at the 5% or even 1%. In liquid biopsy, it's also not commonly understood by oncologists that when a percentage comes out of a test like that and it says that there's a variant allele frequency of 0.5%, people say, that's so tiny. How could that actually be meaningful, clinically meaningful in this patient with progressive disease? What you're doing is you are contrasting or, or relating that percentage of a mutation, let's say, to the entire circulating DNA in that patient. So you and I have probably about a nanogram per ml of circulating DNA, hopefully not tumor DNA, not mutated DNA. But what I'm saying is we all have circulating DNA in, in our blood. And so even these small amounts have been shown over and over now, whether it's an ALK-related cancer, EGFR-related cancer, MET, that you can act on them if it's positive. Now, there has been some debate in the literature about, well, what, a, what about these bizarre, these markers of clonal hematopoiesis, and, and could they obscure things? Well, none of those things are actionable. None of those things are um, going to interfere with your interpretation of an oncogene, and the newest technologies in 2019 filter all those out. Uh, one of the major things that you've been uh, presenting on recently has been uh, blood-based assays uh, for tumor mutational burden. So can you speak to where you see things now for where, what is the role of TMB today? Where do you see it in one or two years? And how is blood going to be integrated, or should it be integrated, relative to tumor? There's no easy answer for that in uh, February 2019, because things are evolving so rapidly. And it's, it is complicated. 
you have to realize that in order to apply TMB uh, in decision making, you want a quantitation of TMB that accounts for neoantigens, because those are the ones that we think are going to be important in stimulating tumor immunogenicity. And it has to do it in a way that is comparable to what we would consider a standard of care in a research setting such as whole exome sequencing. Most people don't know that we now have commercially available tests both in tissue and in blood where there is very good correlation not only with whole exome sequencing but with what we would call neoantigen load where you subtract out those mutations, those abnormalities which are felt to be the most stimulatory. And in fact, in uh, Nature last year, and I presented this, these data at ASCO last year, um, there are very good data, not in lung cancer, but in bladder cancer. There are data in lung cancer, but it's not as, as many patients, that show that even tests such as uh, a foundation one test in tissue or now uh, some of the blood-based tests uh, correlate very well with whole exome sequencing and with neoantigen load. And that if you look at response rate predicted by one of these tests of TMB versus whole exome sequencing or neoantigen load, it is equally effective in predicting response. Is, do you foresee one of the bigger advantages of, of blood-based testing being the, the lower burden to getting biopsies and sending them off in the community because I mean, one of the challenges that I see is a growing gulf between what is available in a, a bigger tertiary care center and what's available in the smaller community-based centers. It starts with the ability to have enough tissue to do the testing or the time it takes to get it sent out and come back. I, I think that point is uh, very well taken. And to me, uh, having commercially available next generation sequencing tests, which are specific and sensitive, levels the playing field between the community oncologist and the academic oncologist. In other words, for several years, uh, academic centers had their own next generation sequencing panels. They also did PCR. They could turn around EGFR mutation in 48 hours. And the community oncologists, by and large, couldn't do that. Now, we know that you don't actually want to test for EGFR mutation. You want to test for all the treatable oncogenes. If you only test for EGFR mutation, you're only delaying things for your patient unless you hit a home run and you find it. So because of that, having these commercially available, analytically validated, clinically validated tests makes a community oncologist empowered that they can they can do the same things anyone else can do and if they can do it in a timely fashion then um, then that's that's a bonus I just want to return to the TMB issue because uh, right now it's there I think there's some misunderstandings number one is if you have TMB just like PDL1, you know, what's an important level? We, we know that PDL1, there are a lot of conflicting data. You know, when do you use monotherapy checkpoint inhibitor? When do you use a combination with chemotherapy? When do you not give it at all? PDL1 
is predictive, but it's not for every patient. TMB appears to be complementary and largely non-overlapping with PDL1, but the same issue arises. And the biggest misunderstanding, I think, by people is that my opinion is that TMB is most important for monotherapy of checkpoint inhibitor or maybe IOIO combination. When you throw in chemotherapy with a checkpoint inhibitor, you actually dilute out the predictive ability because chemotherapy presumably is agnostic. We also have a major trial where they ignored 35,000 human genomes that had gone into establishing a predictive marker and they used a retrospective series, I'm sorry, I apologize for this criticism, but a retrospective of about 120 patients to determine a new cut point that then uh, gave some predictive ability but didn't play out ultimately with overall survival. So we're caught in a position where TMB is in the, to be considered in the NCCN guidelines, the ESMO guidelines, um, but how, how it's going to link to an FDA approval uh, remains a little unclear. But you don't foresee it as an either or, but a both and with PDL1. They're both an incomplete piece of the story. I think that's exactly the point. You know, it's like I said a minute ago if we um, talk to CMS, they didn't want to pay for next generation sequencing because they said, you're analyzing these hundred genes and there are only a few of them you can do anything about and we're only going to pay per the gene. But in reality, you're paying for a test. And if your test can get all the eight things and also can show you other things that help you guide and monitor therapy for that same price, it's okay. I'm hoping that's the way it is with PDL1 and TMB. There are already investigations going on measuring um, PDL1 in blood by messenger RNA, by circulating tumor cells. What you want at the end of the day is to have a practicing oncology have one-stop shopping. They get one test, they get their genomics, they get their immunophenotyping, and they can treat the patient. We're not there yet, but um, we are in a position where TMB is being reported in commercially available assays. And if you have it on a report, and let's say you did it because you were looking for ALK, and instead you find the TMB is really high and your PDL1 in that patient from immunochemistry was low, it's hard to ignore it. Mm -hmm. Just to close on this, uh, you were the president of the IASLC several years ago, and the field has been changing phenomenally, but so has. ISLC, can you comment on just how the whole landscape of lung cancer and ISLC have evolved over the last decade or so? Well, thanks for the opportunity to, to comment on that. Um, I, I'm very passionate about the work that ISLC does and about the organization. It's unique in many ways. It's unique because it started as multidisciplinary. It started as international. There's really nothing else like it. And throughout its long history, it has maintained those attributes. It's also highly inclusive, engaging people at junior levels, providing fellowships, 
uh, having uh, meetings such as this one here in Santa Monica, Targeted Therapies, where entire sessions are devoted to promoting the junior investigator within the organization. So those things have been refined, have grown. ISLC now has the ability to give out, um, I don't remember exactly how many, maybe 28 awards per year uh, for junior investigators where it started with two. Um, but it's maintained some of the primary strengths. The World Conference rotates around the world. Uh, the president and the board of directors are elected to represent the world with gender diversity, geographic diversity. We now have our first South American uh, on the board of directors. And you do have uh, discipline diversity too. Absolutely. I mean, this, this is really something. I mean, you, you get a very diverse population coming to this. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more lung cancer considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.